Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today grew up in a small town in North Dakota and got involved in one of the oldest martial arts in the U.S., boxing, at a very young age. He was a boxing coach for 15 years and was appointed to the North Dakota Athletic Commission and was leading the commission as North Dakota became one of the first states in the country to sanction MMA in 2006. In 2008, he became the executive director of the Department of Athletic Regulation for the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians of Minnesota, and in 2015, he accepted a position of Combative Sports Program Assistant Manager for the state of Texas. He also served as the Vice President of the Association of Boxing Commissioners for 10 years. Please welcome my guest today and my friend, Jim Erickson. How are you doing today, sir? Doing great, Brian. Good to hear from you. Definitely. I'm, gl I'm glad we were able to do this. I know we talked about it for a little while, and schedules finally worked out, so I'm glad, but... What I want to do is I want to go back to the beginning. I want to know what, what led to that first interest. I mean, I, I know, you know, boxing has been a part of your life for a long time. So kind of what, what led to you first getting involved in it and, you know, what age and what were the circumstances? Well, I, uh, I remember as a, a young boy watching uh, an old black and white Zenith round tube TV with my dad on Friday nights when they had the fights. And uh, his friends would sometimes come over and, and we had this little routine where he would ask his friend, you know, who he thought the best fighter was and his, his friend friend would always say Joe Lewis and then my dad had always trained me to say no it's Cassius Clay so I'd say Cassius Clay and that of course was before he became Muhammad Ali nice. and I uh, lost my dad when I was nine years old for cancer and it was one of the few things that really sticked out in my mind from when I was just very very young so that's kind of what uh, I enjoyed those those times and, and like boxing. And as I grew up, there were some local guys that had uh, gone on to box and some younger, that was younger fellas and then older fellas that had boxed either when they were in the service or college or whatever and always piqued my interest when they would talk about it. And uh, so when I got to be college age, I went on to the North Dakota State College of Science and was on the boxing team there and boxed amateur for a while. And uh, then I got my first job in Williston, North Dakota. And that's when I started coaching and kind of went on from there. So you didn't actually get involved in it like yourself until college age. Oh yeah. Oh wow. For yeah. some reason I was thinking I, I it was boxed. like younger. Oh no, no. Okay. We didn't have any boxing right around in our hometown. Now okay. North about an hour and a half or so in Fort Berthold reservation, they had very, very strong boxing program there. Okay. And that I, I knew of some of those folks, too, because they would come down. We had a boarding school in my hometown of New England, North Dakota. And some of the, the young fellas from Fort Bertha would come down there to school and, and talk about it and whatnot. So it just piqued my energy. But, yeah, I, I never had uh, an opportunity until I got on to college. So then think back, you know, when you, when you were doing it in college, do you remember your first fight? First fight, yes, I do. It was against a, a young man from the Grand Forks Air Base. His name was Bruce Newman, left-hander. 
if I remember right. Mm-hmm. And he'd had, he'd had some flights uh, previous to our match. And there was a guy on our team that was from Grand Forks. He said, yeah, this guy's he's a lot bigger than you are. I said, well, aren't we supposed to weigh in and stuff? Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> so I lost that first fight. And he said, don't get discouraged. You know, okay. we get more fights than you. And that was that was kind of the, the whole uh, outcome of it. I, I did very well against guys that had my experience level. But when I ran into the guys that had, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 fights, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a little tougher. Right. A little tougher. Back then, you could fight twice a day. They didn't have the rule that you couldn't fight twice a day. So okay. if you got to a, like, even like a novice tournament or something, and you won a couple fights, you could rack up some bouts, you know, in that, that area. But Definitely. What was it then? I mean, obviously, you, you enjoyed it. So I've talked to other people about this with, with boxing, with martial arts. And so when you lose that fight, what what is it inside you that makes you want to keep going and, and, and get back and get better and, and get in that ring again? Well, it's it's an individual sport. And there's a, a certain feeling that I think people have about individual sports, be it wrestling, to some extent, track and field, boxing, you know, all the martial arts, of course, that it's you. It's if you lose, it's on you. Whether, whether the person is better, that's that's fine. You lose. Um, but if it's something that you could do better uh, in your training or your technique to um, increase your chances of winning, you want to do that. Because when you win, because we had some, you know, we had to fight every week basically to get on the traveling team. So you went in there and when you win that, whether it's just the, the qualifier to get on the traveling team or whatever, it's a pretty good feeling, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you've participated in one-on-one sports. So you know what it's oh, like yeah. when you're in there, and you've gotten the better of somebody Definitely, and it, it just really gives you a boost. So that was my impetus to get back in and train harder and learn more. It was basically the learning curve too, you mm-hmm. know, because um, we had a, a couple of coaches that would come in, but they were more hobbyists, but the one gentleman that I, I worked out with a lot, we were in classes together and stuff. He had been boxing since he was very young. And had, I, I want to say he was a quarterfinalist in the 76 Western Olympic trials in oh, wow. Carson City, Nevada. Okay. And he, uh, I, I learned as much from him as I did from the coaches. We had a couple other guys, too, that had won the Upper Midwest in Minneapolis and whatnot that were on our team there. And I, I'm glad you mentioned the, the one coach. I was going to ask you, is there, you know, one of those first few coaches that really stands out? And, you know, what was it about them that you really remember that, that made them such a good coach? Well, there was there was two of them that I remember being there constantly. And that was Warren Doberstein was the guy's name. And his nickname was Dober. Nice. And he ran like a, I think it was called Western Auto Parts or something. It would be similar to a, to a, oh, what do they have now? all the different chains, you know, yeah, all the different auto parts store, but it was a privately owned one that he had. Uh, like an O'Reilly's and, or a Napa or something. Like an Napa. Or, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he was just a nice guy. He didn't care what your background was, where you were from, race, creed, color, whatever. He, he was just a nice guy. And that was fun to be around. He had a, a fun atmosphere all the time. And then the other one uh, was a guy that would show up once in a while. And he was a very good technician, but he worked for a company called Wilrich. And he, he his hours were really crazy. It was a mm-hmm. manufacturing firm for farm equipment on the Wapaton area. Okay. So he wasn't there as often, but um, they, were, they were just really nice guys that showed interest in development. So that, that was what stuck up in my mind from them okay. more so than their technical skills actually <laughs> nice and so what was like like a typical class like you know typical session what, what are some of the stuff you some of the drills you went through and, and worked on well conditioning was the first thing so if you were smart it was just like anything preseason football or whatever you went out and did some road work ahead of time mm-hmm. so we'd usually kind of either do it by ourselves or buddy up with a couple guys and go out to golf courses or wherever in the fall because 
you know, when it gets to be wintertime, a lot of your stuff is run stairs inside North Dakota because it's pretty <laughs> tough outside, but we would get out too. So anyway, we do that and the uh, important part is stretching to get ready. And then we did you know, bag drills and uh, target mitt drills and jumping rope and um, sparring. We did a lot of sparring because it was, you know, we were going to be there for a limited time. So he was going to put everybody in the ring and see how well they did in the ring and then go from there as opposed to you, you might have a program when I coach we anticipated we'd have the kids come back year after year after year. So you kind of, you built them differently right. than, than getting thrown into that situation we were in where you might be there one, two, three, whatever years and be gone. So, okay. So did you ever have any uh, interest at all of trying to go pro? Was that ever something oh, on your radar? That's why I started coaching. I knew I'd never make a buck. <laughs> <fighting pro. laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. I, I got out of college and got a job in Williston, North Dakota, mm-hmm. and it was during uh, one of their oil booms up there, and I didn't really know anybody when I moved up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd been up there once or twice in my whole life, so I cashed in a, a, my last savings bond I had to get down payment for a, an apartment, which was a miracle to find in that environment up there at that time, and I uh, went up there and started working and heard that they'd had a boxing club for about a year or so. And I thought, well, I can go over there and spend some time in the evening or whatever. And so I went over there and did some sparring. And after that, um, there was two gentlemen that ran the club, a father and a son. And the father came over to where I was working. And he says, are you interested in joining a boxing team? I said, no, I, I just you know, I got to concentrate on work and you know, trying to get settled here in town. He says, well, would you be interested in coaching? I said, yeah, that, that sounds like it would be fun. And uh, that's, I think I coached there 15 years somewhere, give or take. Wow. So what do you think, thinking to when you first started doing it, what do you think changed about your your teaching style, your coaching style over the years? Uh, you got to have a lot of patience and you got to try to understand what you can get out of it. I'm going to say a young man because that when I was coaching, it was prior to the lawsuit that was filed. I think it was with amateur boxing through it was past the AAU days probably mm-hmm. with the ABF days to allow girls to have tournaments they, they didn't have them at that time so we didn't have any girls in the gym that oh, boxed wow. okay so when I talk about these guys or young men or whatever that's I'm not excluding they just weren't there weren't female boxers at that time okay but trying to trying to understand you got to try to learn the learn the, the personalities of the athlete and we, we dealt with kids from 10 years old on up and just try to understand the differences in a 10-year-old. You might have a 10-year-old that's the youngest of four brothers, and he's at home, he's getting in fights all the time. He's probably, <laughs> at 12 years old, he's probably ready to get in the ring and fight. Yeah. But then you have, on the other side of that, you have a kid that maybe he's 12 or 13, and he's the oldest of five kids, and the all other four are all younger sisters. And mm-hmm. all he's heard growing up is, don't you hit anybody, don't you hit anybody, you know? And so <laughs> yeah. you got to try to get a little bit of their their home life in, in mind and work on that. And we were also, a, we tried to be kind of a performance gym in that we were going to do what we could to get the most out of that kid. Mm-hmm. And if the most was waiting two, three years until he finally had enough confidence and skills to get in the ring. That's what we did. We weren't a, we weren't the babysitting kind where the parents just dropped the kids off and they messed around for a couple hours. Right. We, we made them all train. And uh, I, I do remember one kid in particular that his dad came in and was kind of like what I was talking about earlier. He, he had a younger sister at home and his dad was a, uh, I think he worked, 
I don't remember the name of the company, but it was an oil drilling company. And they were from Canada originally, and he was uh, one of the top people in this oil drilling company. And he says, my son doesn't have a lot of friends in school. They didn't come right at the beginning of school, but they came a couple weeks or whatever after. And so he didn't know anybody, and he was a little bit on the chubby side. And, you know, same thing, he loved his mom and his dad and his little sister and, and just didn't have a, a very aggressive um, personality. Mm-hmm. which is not a bad thing. Right. <laughs> it's yeah, not a bad thing. Definitely. So he came in and he said, can you have him train here? And at least maybe he'll find some kids about his age and make some friends or whatever. I said, yeah, that's, that's fine. But do understand, you know, he's going to have to do all the exercise. Oh, he says, that'll be good for him. Cause he's you know, a little bit on the chunky side. You know, okay. So the kid comes in and, and uh, he did, he worked really hard, you know, and, and you could see his limitations and you work, try to work around them to try to improve them and mm-hmm. his confidence for one thing. And, I remember I said, okay, we got a match in, we were in Williston, so I'd say, like, Minot or something. Well, do we have to stay overnight? I said, yeah, yeah, we're going to drive down. It'll be fight in the afternoon and the evening, and then we'll come back the next day. Ah, no, I'm going to, I'll wait. Okay, so finally, the time came where we had a fight in Dickinson, North Dakota, which is in a different time zone. Mm-hmm. And so the fights would start, put this way, we drove home that night. And I said, you're not going to have to stay overnight. You don't have to go if you don't want to, but just understand we're, we're going down there and fight, and then we're going to have enough time to drive home that night. Okay, I'll go. Okay, so he's ready to go. Now I've got to find an opponent that's equally matched. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to take this kid in and get him hurt. Right. <laughs> so yeah. we get to Dickinson, and uh, one of my friends had some kids there, and I said, okay, I got this kid. I explained nicest kid, but he's just not a tiger. You know, he's he's a little bit on the shy side. And all. He says, I got the perfect guy for you. I got one the same way. So they fight, and Jimmy comes out. His name was Jimmy, and I remember because my mm-hmm. name's Jim. Jimmy comes out, and he's got, we had a big trunk full of, of uniforms that we would furnish if the kids wanted anything other than that, they had to buy their own. But we had red trunks and blue tops. So he comes out in these big trunks, and he's got them pulled up Wait, midway between his pectoral muscles and his waist and the crowd's going Ali Ali you know, they're yelling for him and, and he's awesome. standing up there looking around like what the heck ends up winning the fight wow so yeah and a trophy because we didn't always get you know there's some of the teams or fighters that you know, what, are we, what are they giving for awards we didn't care we didn't come to buy shoes we came to fight if you give us a trophy or a medal that's fine if not that's fine too. Mm-hmm. so anyway we get to the gym Monday and he comes in and he doesn't have his bag with him. He says, I'm going to retire now. Now, this kid's like 12. <laughs> he says, oh, I'm going to retire now. And his dad comes in a little while later with this very nice donation from his oil company for mm-hmm. our gym. And he said, this young man here has all kinds of friends now. He comes home. His chest is out in front of him. And he's, he's really doing good. So he's going to quit now. <laughs> all he's had. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, but I mean, that was just one of the stories about total change in a kid. And, you know, just that, that was fun. That nice. was fun. Things like that are fun. But your question was, what do we look for? What do we do? Mm-hmm. We try to get the most out of that kid that we can. And if that means getting on him a little bit or teasing him or, I mean, not, not being mean to him. Right. But, you know, we had a kid that was such an outstanding athlete, but he just didn't have a lot of meanness in him. And, Combative sports is not a passive sport, mm-hmm. a passive pastime. You're, you're going to have to be aggressive. So we kind of started picking on him like, geez, 
I have two daughters and they were quite young at the time. And I think Jim's daughters hit that bag harder than you do. And then he'd stop and he'd stare at us. And <laughs> man, he would hit that bag after that. And, and he ended up, he ended up doing very well for himself. Um, went to Colorado Springs a couple of times for the nationals and he did well, That's but cool. it was just kind of pushing his button a little bit, trying okay. to get him to perform. And if I remember you telling me before, is that around the time you first met Virgil Hill when you were there? Yeah. Yeah. What ended up happening there again, we were there during the oil boom, so we could we had some of the fighters that their dads or uncles or whatever worked in the oil field or whatever. So we we set up charitable gaming, and we also had bingo every Tuesday night at the gym. We had a portable ring, floor ring, so we could fold that ring up and put chairs and tables up in about 25, 30 minutes, have bingo and fundraisers and all that. But we could also send the dads out. Like if we had a big tournament somewhere, we'd tell them, hey, Need a little money to travel on, and, and they'd go out in an afternoon and make us some money, get donations from oil field companies and whatnot. And so anyway, we put on some pretty big amateur matches. Mm-hmm. I remember one of them in the armory in, in uh, Williston. We filled that place. There had to have been seven, 800 people there to see an amateur match. Nice. And we had some tournaments, and at that time, Virgil was a teenager and living in Grand Forks where he had grown up. And uh, there was he was to the point where it was tough getting him local fights because he was just better than everybody else yeah and you 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 had very little chance of winning it was always like well (laughs) hope i don't have to fight him tonight you know anyway (laughs) we always got in fights and he and another um of his teammates by the name of mark strickland they were always coming over all the way from grand forks to williston because we could get them fights and finally he said hey you guys are always nice to me and you're always getting me fights that helps my career he said would you train me if if uh my family moved over here yeah, we got room. Nice. Bring Mark, whatever. So he and Mark both moved over, and, and that was one of the things that we did with him was we put him in tough as often as we could. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to the Nationals. I think the first time I went was in 1980, and it was in, in the back back pavilion, small pavilion at Caesars Palace in Vegas. And Virgil was there, and I think he was only about 16 at the time. And you had to be, at that time, you had to be 16 to fight open division. And he, you could tell he was a good boxer and everything. But when he got in with the top echelon, you know, once you get into this national tournament, there's no division one, division two, NAI, FBS, anything like that. It's, you might draw somebody from New York City or Los Angeles, whatever. So anyway, you have to fight at that tournament. You'd have to fight five times in six days to win it. Well, he'd maybe win one or two or whatever, and then he'd, running some stipper competition. And I think it was just the fact that he hadn't been facing that kind of competition during the year. So once he moved over to Williston, once a month, we would bring somebody in to challenge him. We brought in fighters from Salt Lake City and Kansas and Chicago and you name it. And, and he uh, he worked harder than any athlete I've ever worked with. Really? Okay. And uh, the guy, you have to rein him in once in a while. He, he just, he had a, he's got a kind of a chronic problem with one of the knuckles on his left hand and surgery wasn't going to be really an option that rest was the option. And don't you know, we'd come in early practice and he'd be pounding <laughs> on the bag and dude, your hand's not going to heal. Oh, I don't want to get on shit. <laughs> so we you know, got water bags and whatever we could to try to help him get that hand healed. And, but I, I remember one day he had a fight with Bobby Chez in Bismarck and it was after he'd won the title already it was one of his title defenses in the pros and he said I said how did you sleep last night this was the morning of the fight and he said ah kept waking up and I just felt really jittery and everything I said were you okay yeah yeah I went out for a little run this morning I'm fine I said well what's a little run he says eight miles Jeez. he ran eight miles and then 
fought a 12 round world championship fight wow. and won, I think 10 or 11, I'd have to look on box record or whatever, but he won almost every round. He went wow. the whole 12 rounds and almost shut up. So that's the kind of athlete he could don't, you don't know, but he could have been, he could have been a, he might've been a, a D one D two football player. You just mm-hmm. never know. He was a very gifted athlete. That's very cool. gifted. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> with the first year we had him was an 82. And after getting used to fighting that level of competition, he won four out of five of his fights and was runner up at the nationals the first year. And then 83, he got on the traveling team and his first international competition was against the East Germans. That was back before the wall came down mm-hmm. and he won both of those fights and just kind of went on from there. 84, he won the national golden gloves. And that was my trip to first trip to Texas. Didn't, didn't know I'd eventually move here, but my first trip to Texas was in 1984 for the Olympic trials, which he won and then went on and got a silver medal and then ducked nice. it in the professional hall of fame 2013 after five of time world champion. So that's cool. But we had other kids that were dang good too. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. That's kind of hard to little overshadowed a little by Virgil. I mean, he's kind of a little more well-known, well, but still, I mean, that's, I'm sure there's a lot of kids that just sometimes just never got the chance too. So, yeah. And that was our goal was to give them that chance, whether it meant, you know, I remember you had some clubs that if they're senior boxers, which were 16, 17, 18 on up, did well at the state tournament. And then you went on to the fourth state tournament and then on to the nationals. Well, sometimes they didn't mess with their juniors and say, well, they're just kids. Well, those juniors work just as hard during the year and they should be rewarded with being able to travel to the next level of tournaments. And that was something that we did. We had, I remember we talk about fundraisers. We had a silver gloves tournament and that's for, for boxers under 16. And we had, our team had, uh, I think, four. We had four guys win the state and the four states. So we had four of them qualify for the nationals. And the tournament was in Kingsport, Tennessee, clear other end of the country. <laughs> and so they're all excited because they want to go to this tournament. And we're like, well, plane tickets, $2,000 back then just for them. you know. And wow. So we thought, well, we had to do some fundraising or whatever. But we went, again, went to the parents. And the parents went out and they raised the money. And, and uh, they fought. None of them won the tournament, but two of them fought future world champions. Wow. That's and cool. When they were just, you know, they were 12, 13, 14 years old. And mm-hmm. one of them fought uh, Mark, I can't think of his name now, Mark Too Sharp Johnson, I think his name. And the other one was fought a, a fighter out of Florida that became a world champion later on in the pros. Nice. And it was the same with Virgil's teammate, Mark Strickland. Mark, whatever Mark did, Virgil did just a little better. <laughs> I felt bad for him. They mm-hmm. were both in the finals of the National Gold Gloves in 1984. There's only 11 weight classes. And we mm-hmm. had two kids from Williston, North Dakota in the national finals. And Virgil won and Mark lost. So everybody's like, well, Virgil won the national gloves. Yeah, but Mark got to the finals. Come on. <laughs> you know, That's still pretty cool. <laughs> he, yeah. And he he beat some guys that became world champions in the in the pros, but Mark's game was was amateur the way he he boxed. And he had a couple pro fights, but you know, just didn't didn't really catch on pro wise, but he was an outstanding amateur. It's good though. I mean such such a cool experience. So what led to you uh, getting involved in the athletic commission? Is that something was that your idea? Did they approach you? I started giving some suggestions to him, and it it happened after uh, Virgil turned pro, and North Dakota had some really, really old guidelines and laws that they were following, and they Mm -hmm. were basically modeled after New York's from, gosh, who knows how long, I'm I'm thinking maybe in the 1920s or 30s, and they were still scoring by the round system as opposed to the 10-point must system like is used now. Mm -hmm. 
And they weren't the only ones. Um, I think New York, some of the other states use that scoring system up into the mid 80s. Wow. You go on box rec and you look at a guy's fight and it was a, a 10 rounder and he won it seven to three. <laughs> seven to three what the heck's that well that's seven rounds to three rounds and they had a five point supplemental system so that at the end of that round if the guy won the round then you gave him between one and five points for winning it might have been he won it real closely so he got two points if he was a blowout he won it and he got five points well if there was a draw at the end you add up the supplemental five point system and you come up with a winner interesting but anyway (laughs) So Virgil's starting to come back to North Dakota and bring some pretty big audiences with him, and even before he won the title. And, and I was working with our gym, and we ended up getting some professional fighters in our gym as well that were on some of the same cards. And uh, I talked to the people at the state, and there was a guy by the name of Jim Kusler, who is the Secretary of State. And in North Dakota, when you become the Secretary of State, by default, you're also the head of the Athletic Commission, yep. whether you want to or not. And he kind of ran with it. There had been a guy by the name of Benny Meyer who had been there for years and years and years. And there were just some small, low-level fights. And everybody got along, and it was cool. Mm-hmm. But when they started bringing TV and talking about all these big fights, we thought, yeah, maybe we need to come out of the shadows a little bit and see if we can improve things. So one of the things I did was to get a hold of Mr. Kusler, and I said, can we use the 10-point must system as opposed to this other system? Because we've got fighters coming in from out of state. And they're like, what? So he said, can you send it to me and help me understand it? And he said, yeah. I said, there was really no safety concerns that you should be worried about or anything like that. And so kind of got a waiver to do that. And then that's kind of where it started with, uh, I think the, the one thing that I do remember that may have really convinced him was there was a WBA, and I don't think it was a world title fight, but it was one of the big sanctioning bodies came in to do like a regional championship or something. And I'm pretty sure it was with Virgil's fight or it might've been, he was on the card. They did a, another fight that was also on the card. But anyway, I said, have you checked on something? I don't remember what it was. He says, well, the, the WBA is sanctioning a fight or the WBC or whichever sanctioning body. I said, well, they control the belt. They don't really set the rules for the fighters to fight under. Oh, I said that what's not being addressed is whatever it was, whether it was insurance for the fight or whatever. Mm -hmm. He says, oh, okay. Yeah, those are some things we need to look at. So then they put together a commission. Kind of, It was like we got a stipend, and and they would send us to the ABC conference every year. So that was our our pay, basically. It was kind of funny because there was no teams or or, – Skype or anything back then. So you either met in person in Bismarck or you, if someone was lucky enough to have an office that had a multi-line telephone line, you know, where you could (laughs) get a bunch of people on the line at one time. And we had our meetings and and I was on there and uh, there was some other coaches that had been around for a lot longer than myself. I think Del Seeley from Bismarck and uh, I think Diddy Connell from Grand Forks and Pat Ng. And there was a couple of doctors and, and so drafted some some uh, new rules and and Virgil ended up making good use of them. He he did 16 of his successful title defenses in North Dakota. Wow. And he would always fill pretty much any arena he went to. He fought most of them at the Civic Center in Bismarck, mm-hmm. but also fought in Grand Forks and Minot and Fargo. And yep. So as commissioners, then we learned so much as well because we dealt with all the big promoters. You know, Bob Arum, Don King, all of them came up to North Dakota. We worked with all the networks, Showtime and HBO. And back when USA Boxing or USA Network had boxing every Tuesday night, we worked with them, worked with ESPN. Um, so it was... It was a good learning experience for myself as well. And uh, 
kind of prepared me to uh, eventually be able to kind of weed my way through all the stuff that pro boxing is. Nice. That's really cool. And I know just from a personal, I mean, I only worked with you at a, a couple of boxing events. I did more MMA events, but I do know working with multiple states and, and different commissions, North Dakota was one of the best. I mean, they, you guys just had your stuff together. It ran like a well-oiled machine. It was, it was like a model for other states. It was so, so fun to work with you guys. <laughs> you definitely made well, it easy. Yeah. yeah. And it was at first, it was the same way when we started training fighters in our gym and i didn't really i kind of worked with i didn't train i wasn't a specific trainer for any of the pro fighters but i kind of bruce wegley and myself worked together for years and uh sent a prayer out to him he's he's in the hospital right now with some health issues but uh anyway uh he said okay well let's you know we were gone i know some some years we were gone on the road 25 weekends out of the year so almost every other weekend we were on the road plus our tournaments that we had at home and he says, how about you take over the amateurs? I'll take over the pros and we'll help each other in the gym. And, you know, we had so many fighters in the amateurs that sometimes we'd split up and send a van load to one tournament and another van load to a different direction somewhere else to try to keep the kids busy and try to get in fights. Mm-hmm. So anyway, when, when we first took our first fighter over to Montana to fight at a pro card, and it was, he would have been, I think it may have been Tucker Pudwell from Mandan, who ended up eventually fighting for the IBF world title in Germany. But it was his first pro debut, and it was on undercard to a young man that had been on the 88 Olympic team, Todd. Oh, gosh. I can't think of his name right now, but he was from, he's from Montana, and he was on the 88 Olympic team. Okay. And so he was having fights at home, just as Virgil would have fights in North Dakota. And they were filling the undercard with locals. And we went over there, and we thought, oh, man, this is a little intimidating here in this pro game. And then we started seeing all these familiar faces that we knew from the amateur program. We're like, this isn't any different. It's just a little, they're getting paid. You know, it's a little higher level fighters, but (laughs) it was nothing to be uh, intimidated by. And, but it was, it was a good deal. That's cool. I had, I don't know if I've ever asked you this, but I know so I did just a very little boxing when I was younger. Cause one of my classmates, a a girl I graduated with her, her older brother is Dwayne Bobbick. I'm sure you, I'm sure. Oh. You, yeah. I'm sure you know that name. <laughs> I don't know if you ever oh, got to work with him Bobby, at all or not. All, but... There was like Dwayne and Rodney and yep. there was two or three of them that were excellent. Dwayne oh, was an Olympian. Yep. If I remember right. Correct. Navy veteran on the Navy team. Actually, there's a, a boxing legend from Cuba by the name of Teofilo, Teofilo Stevenson. Okay. Heavyweight multi-Olympic gold medalist. They had tried, Cuba outlawed after the revolution, they outlawed pro boxing down there. Mm-hmm. So the only pro boxers that come out of Cuba either came prior to that or they defected and ran away. Well, he didn't. He stayed there. And Dwayne Bobbick was one of the few people to beat him. And I oh, think wow. it, if I'm not wrong, it was at the Pan Am Games one year. Okay. He beat, or it may have been the Olympics, but he did beat him. And uh, Stevenson was, he was so popular that they were going to have him match Muhammad Ali coming right out of the amateurs mm-hmm. but they fidel castro wouldn't allow it so that never happened <laughs> that's crazy and i also i, I know i've told the story to, to many many people that as far as i know i think i might be the the first person that actually got you to throw a kick when i met you through the mma commission we were we were <laughs> chatting one time and I, I don't know if i've ever told the story on the show but we just kind of were joking about it and then we ended up taking it seriously where i think for about almost six months we met each other and a few other guys from our Taekwondo school every morning at 5 a.m. and worked out mm-hmm. for an hour. And you were at yeah. us through boxing drills. I taught you, and you were, you 
threw some good kicks. I know you didn't think you did, but you could kick. <laughs> well, it was it was a lot of fun. It was kind of a stress reliever for it, me. It was. And and you know, I a, miss another it. shout out. You know, and God bless our friend Randy. You yeah, know, it passed. Yes, I, I, yes. I can remember coming to the gym and I saw this huge man, <laughs> huge man, with a beard and pierced ears and and taps. And I thought, okay, well, let's what's going on here? So it was pretty big. You know, Master Grimstead had a pretty nice sized gym. Yeah. So we were running sprints and and I thought, well, I was probably I wasn't no spring chicken at the time, but I thought, well, I'll see if I could keep up with these guys. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, that guy got to rolling. I would have, I understand he played, what was it, football at Valley City? I think he did football and wrestling, possibly. And wrestling? Yeah. And I thought, I would not want to be standing in front of him if he had a full head of steam and run into me. Yep. That guy was very agile and very fast and just a good all-around guy. So yep. as were you and everybody that was down there, I you know, I, I asked Mr. Grunstead, is it, is it okay if I come in, he's always oh, be happy to have. Matter of fact, if you want a key, and I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so um, it was it was just a very welcoming atmosphere, and I I learned so much, you know, about the different sports, and it, yeah, I, yeah, it was, I, it was I a lot missed, of fun. I missed those work, and a, and a and a quick Randy story. One of his first times in actual Taekwondo class, I was his partner, and we were doing this drill where we had like the chest protectors we use in a Taekwondo tournament. I think we had two or three, mm-hmm. two or three of them on, and basically you had to try to punch punch your partner and, and try to move them. And if you had so many tries and if you couldn't move them a certain distance, you had to do push ups. and Randy was punching and, and he, you know, was barely moving me. And I'm, I looked at him and I said, put your weight into it. And he hauled back and <laughs> put everything he had into it. And he dropped me. <laughs> I bet I flew back like six feet. <laughs> You regret ever saying that, right? Oh, I loved it. I, I got. He's like, I, he's like, I'm so sorry, and I had the biggest smile on my face. I'm like, that's what you need to do every time. It was so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but and, and that's that's the joy of of teaching somebody something. And you know, I got like I said, we we had the Olympic trials. We won here in '84 with Virgil, and that was great. But mm-hmm. seeing this little guy I mentioned earlier yep. come home with a trophy, that's great too. Yes. You know, it doesn't have to be in front of a bunch of cameras and TV lights and all that. It can be just something. And, you know, something minor to me, but major to that competitor. One thing I always kind of wanted to ask you is, so what led to North Dakota starting to sanction MMA? Was that, was that something, was it your decision? Did someone say to you, Hey, we need to do this, start looking into it. Kind of, how did that play out? It was kind of a combination of things. The, the rules stated that you could not have competition that was, and, and I want to say that the phrase was, so you think you're a tough kind of competition, barroom brawl, that kind okay. of language was used in there. And we knew that some of this was going on and we were actually invited to some of them to say, Hey, come and look at this and see what you think. And, mm-hmm. and some of them, we went unannounced and some of them, we were there by invitation and some of the stuff we saw was pretty good. Some of it was, was not good. <laughs> yep. And so we had, and I'm going to, again, try to get back in my mental Rolodex here was people like yourself. Mm-hmm. Chad Curley, yep. Karen, and, and what's his first name? Gumringer. Oh, yeah, Jeff. Yep. Jeff, Olms, Clint Olmstead, mm-hmm. Chris Nelson, yourself. Yep. And people saying, let's let's really try to get something going here. Let's you know come and see more of it, learn more about it, see what we can do. And I would say the one that contributed the most, and not, not to slight anybody, but it was probably Chad Curley. Oh, Chad. And Chad actually Time's got awesome. on the commission yep. and said, you know, here's, you need, you need to understand understand it more because a lot of people 
if it's something you don't understand, it's automatically wrong. Right. And so he took some of the extra time and went through that. So then we, we worked with the commission. And one of the things that was a turning point for me was um, with the ABC, we had our conference in 2005. It was in Las Vegas. And for several years prior to that, that was back when Frank and Lorenzo Partita ran it, owned it. And then they brought in, they brought Dana White in later on. Mm-hmm. But Lorenzo would come to the ABC conference every year with a beautiful spiral bound laminated presentation and do a slideshow and just very professional, very polite, just saying, you know, we really hope you have questions. We hope you ask us. We, we really want you to, to approve MMA in your state because all of, most of the states were at those conventions. Right. And there was kind of three things there was either the state banned it, like North Dakota said, no, we catch you doing that, we can file a complaint against you. Or they would just ignore it and let it happen, or they would regulate it. And he he never, he always was for the regulation. He said, if you feel that a doctor should be there, then make a law that a doctor has to be there. You know, ambulances, whatever. Mm-hmm. Get concerned with the safety, learn about it. So anyway, when we're down there in 2005, they had a gymnasium in Las Vegas. It was long before the Apex was built. It's, they said, we have a place that we train and film the ultimate fighter. Would you all be interested in coming? Said, sure. They said, well, I have a little lunch there, you know, snacks. We can come in. And, and uh, so they brought two big charter buses to the hotel because they didn't want, I don't know that it was a secret location or anything, but they didn't want a bunch of people park, driving there and parking there, whatever. Yep. So they load us on these buses. They take us to this little warehouse district. We go into this very plain looking metal built or a concrete building. And there's the gym set up. It's got a cage. It's got a ring. It's got everything you need. And they had us come in and they said, okay, now that everybody's here or whoever, I don't think everybody from the conference came, but a lot of people came. Mm-hmm. They said, we understand that you all know a lot about the stand-up game about boxing. What we want to do is expose you to some of the ground game and how it works and what are some of the techniques and, you know, different things like that. And so they had two gyms bring their competitors in. One of them was a local gym and the other one was uh, Eddie Bravo's gym from Las Vegas or from Los Angeles. Okay. So he's there with his fighters and they're from like 12, 13, all the way up into the adult group. And they had their shoulder mounted professional grade cameras and they're explaining this and they're doing live sparring and, and grappling and rolling around. And they're just, you know, explain. It was just, it was really, to me, it was a turning point. And that's what Frank or Lorenzo, one of the two said, you know, we, we hope that some of you leave here with a little bit better idea and are, are leaning toward allowing the sport in your state or tribe. That's cool. And it did, it, it sure did the trick for me. <laughs> and the, the cool thing about it was the next morning at eight o'clock, when we started our session, they had a big box full of probably a hundred DVDs. They had burned DVDs late into the night and had one for everybody oh, of that wow. event the night before. That's cool. And I still, I think I've got mine somewhere. I don't know. I've, I've lent it out a couple times mm-hmm. and I don't know if I got it back, but yeah. That, so that's awesome. Frank and, and Lorenzo were very instrumental in turning the heads of a lot of commissions because they were they approached you professionally and they stressed the safety and it was, yeah. So oh, and that's, I'm, I'm glad it worked out. I, <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed 2005 it. 2005 <laughs> is when that happened. And we had our first sanctioned events in 2006. Yeah. I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was like September, October, 2006. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, just but, ba- uh, barely a year, probably. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> you turned it around that fast. Yeah, and Yeah. Yeah. But we, 
we were um, finding ways to do it as opposed to finding ways not to do it. Yeah. I know there was a, there was a couple of year span where North Dakota had probably averaged at least two events a month for a while, which was nice. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I miss yeah. those days. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, there's, there's a lot of easier sports to do than combative sports, be it boxing or whatever. Yep, that is true. And kids these days, the ones that you can get off of their video <laughs> games aren't, not interested in a in a sport like that, unfortunately. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that we had talked about uh, through the ABC when I used to be active in it was trying to get it back as a collegiate sport. Because at one time, boxing was a collegiate sport. It still is in a very few, yeah. you know, like uh, the Air Force Academy has it. And I think like Xavier and Brown University and Notre Dame and a few of those have it. But it's, they have a little bit different rules. They wear bigger gloves, shorter rounds, things like that. And but it, you know, if it was like football or basketball or track and field, it would give some athletes that that may otherwise not be able to afford to go to college or not have the opportunity to do a work study to get through college. Or it would give them something to strive for through their grade school, middle school, high school, and college lives as as an alternative sport to help them get an education. And that that's one of the things that's that's missing in my mind or was missing and we maybe pass that that ship's already sailed and yeah. we'll probably never put it back in college again but well, just looking you know. at the the website for the or national yeah national collegiate boxing championship and just look, some of the schools listed yeah obviously you mentioned like the military ones it's got the air force the u.s military academy it's got you know, university of north carolina uh, this was a 2019 so maybe they haven't had one since since covid but university of north carolina university of nevada reno um, University of Cincinnati, Penn State, Miami University, Washington. Those are all like, you know, bronze, silver, and, and uh, gold. Uh, Iowa State. That's uh, that's about it. <laughs> At least, and yeah. and Cal, Cal Berkeley and Connecticut are also on there. So there's like a yeah. handful. So who knows? Maybe it'll maybe it'll make a comeback. You never know. Yeah. But again, it gets back to the liability and yeah. everything. And if you're in a conservative state and you know, you, I don't like to bring up deaths, but right. you know that's what that's what kind of scrubbed the national program to start with with the NCAA. They had a death at the national finals oh. for collegiate boxing. And I believe it was in Wisconsin. Okay, <clears throat> maybe in the late fifties, early sixties, somewhere around there, and that that made a lot of schools drop it. That's kind of where it started losing steam. Okay. So what advice would you give someone, uh, let's say someone approached you and they're, they're thinking of getting involved in boxing and what would you tell them? What, what should they look for in a school? What should they look for in a coach? You know, if they've never done it before. Well, look at the facility to start with and, and, and not, not that it needs to be fancy because ours certainly wasn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, it, it was definitely not fancy, but uh, it's got to have enough equipment that you can, you can, you know, can have some padding on the floor. You know, you don't want a, a ring set up on a concrete floor because eventually you might get knocked down headgear or not. That's going to hurt if you're on a concrete floor. Oh, yeah. Kind of look for some of the safety stuff. Look for uh, an established program that doesn't always mean it's good, but a program that's been around and maybe produced some some amateur and or pro champions, a caring staff that's going to be there all the time. That's that's the, one of the quickest ways for a gym to fail is if you're not there and you got the key to the door and you got a kid that's maybe walked 12 blocks through the snow and he's expecting that door to be open. Yeah. And it's not. Do you think he's going to walk 12 blocks through the snow the next night? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> So it's you know, being there for the for the athletes is important. Nowadays, I guess you'd probably have to shop around for price a little bit. Yeah. We didn't. We never charged our kids anything. 
but nowadays it's very common, you know, 50, 75, 100 bucks a month, whatever it is, you know, and they, they, a lot of them give scholarships if you aren't able to afford it. They have, uh, you know, donors that will help. But, and that's another thing too, if you're there with your parents and you don't have the financial means to, to join, tell them, I'm, I'm really interested in joining your club, but I, I just don't know if we can afford it. And they might be able to help you out. You mm-hmm. don't know unless you ask. Yeah. Maybe offer to, you know, sweep up or something after class yeah. and you know, earn yeah. it. Yeah, we had <laughs> another funny story. Okay. We had a, a group of kids that, that had been at the gym for many years and we were doing well and, and uh, they appreciated everything. So we every year we threw a banquet for all the fighters and their parents who would have like Dutch fried chicken or whatever and tried to, we didn't try to, we would, every kid that attended, we had cards made up ahead of time, little recipe cards where we would read some of their accomplishments and, you know, try to make them all feel good. Whether, you know, they might have lost every fight they fought, Mm -hmm. but you say, this kid never gives up. He's in the gym every, whatever. So we have this banquet and the kids surprise us and they give us the coaches plaques and they say world's best coach or whatever, Wilson boxing team, 19, whatever. And mine's still displayed in my trophy room right now. Nice. It was a long time ago. But anyway, this friend of ours, his wife uh, had a trophy shop, and she made the the plaques. She says, Jim, um, I was just wondering, uh, were, were those kids going to pay for those plaques? Said, what? Well, yeah, the one kid come in, and he ordered them and told us what he wanted on them, and, and then he picked them up, and then that was it. I said, well, how much were they? And they were like, Three or four of them, and they were like seven dollars. I said, "Here, here. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry." <laughs> so I paid her. She said, oh, "No, no, it's not a big deal." So anyway, get to practice the next night. I said, "All right, who's the mastermind behind these plaques?" And then one kid kind of beaming, he stood up. I, I put that all together. Okay, you need to talk. <laughs> so I <laughs> took him aside. I said, "What happened, man? Did you? Did nobody pay you?" Well, yeah, I collected money for it, but um, I, I spent it. <laughs> I said, well, do you think that was fair to the other guys? <laughs> no. I said, do you think that was fair to the lady that printed or that made those plots? No. I said, he says, well, I don't have any money. <laughs> I said, well, here's what we can do. The lawn needs to be mowed. <laughs> Bathrooms need to be cleaned. The gear needs to be put away. So he he worked it off, and he was glad to. But nice. it was you know the, the difference between him standing up thinking he's going to get recognition and then getting called out for not paying for him. <laughs> it kind of changed his attitude a little bit. That's funny. That's awesome. Kind of an opinion question. Not really, not really opinion, I guess. But who were some you know three, four, five? Whether they're boxers, martial artists, you've been involved in both. But who would you put on your like personal Mount Rushmore of like martial arts? Oh wow! Well, you got. You got the Gracie family. Nice. I don't know how you'd narrow it down to which ones. <laughs> yeah. I did do, uh, I did the, oh, was it, who, the, who was the old one that fought last? Was it Frank Shamrock and uh, Royce? Yeah, I think it was Royce, yeah, and Shamrock. Yeah. yeah. And that was here in Texas. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of, for me, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I was in the yeah. locker room and seeing him and his relatives and stuff there. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Gosh, there's, there's, you know, the MMA has such popularity mm-hmm. now. There's so many good guys in there. Yeah, what about for boxing? Well, you got to have some good boxing ones on there. Oh, yeah. the Some of them are kind of obscure, the ones that I like. There mm-hmm. was a guy back in the 40s that fought. His name was uh, Henry Armstrong. Okay. And back then, they only had eight weight classes. Oh, wow. And, you know, today there's like 17. There's a weight <laughs> class every two or three pounds yep. you know, because the sanctioning bodies get a cut off of every title fight and mm-hmm. so on. Anyway. And everybody wants to be champion, so let's make more titles so that everybody could be a champion. So anyway, so back then, eight titles. He had three of them, three out of the eight. He was a world champion in three weight class. 
fought for a fourth and lost. I think he lost like a majority decision or something. Wow. Had he won that fight, he would have had half the world titles. In of all boxing, and nowadays you can't do that because you got to if you have one and you move up or down a weight class, you've got to vacate the other one. So that'll never that's a that's a record that'll never be matched again ever. That's cool. Okay. And he probably had that was back when those guys it wasn't uncommon uncommon for them to have like 150 pro fights. Right. You know, you get these guys. I'm trying to think if it was uh, there was an old light heavyweight that I can see his face again, but you know, they talk about all oh, this guy's almost got a hundred fights. He had a hundred knockouts, a <laughs> hundred knockout wins. Wow. You know, and Archie Moore was his name. Okay. The mongoose, they called yep. him. Uh, of course, you get, you get the modern day guy. Mm-hmm. Of course, Ali, uh, pretty tough to Definitely. take him off of anybody's top list. One guy that I never did get to meet. I never met him. I come real close. Yeah. Matter of fact, that tournament I was talking about when we went to Tennessee, there was actually a couple parents that came along and, there was an earlier flight when we when we went home, and and some of the kids said, "Well, can we go home early?" And I said, "That's up to you. You know, if these parents, because back then you could switch the tickets without any penalty if there was openings." Mm-hmm. I said, "If they're willing to watch you on the flights, but you got to do what they say." And blah blah. And the other ones were like, "Ah, we're not going to go. We're going to stay and sleep in it, but hit the buffet one more time." I said, "Okay." <laughs> well, that first group when they made a connection in Charlotte, North Carolina, guess who was in the airport? That's and awesome. they got pictures with him. Dang. So cool. when we got home into the gym the next week, they're bragging about these pictures and they're like, oh man, we should have, you were the ones that wanted to sleep in. Wasn't me. <laughs> so they missed seeing Holly. I did get to meet Joe Lewis Ooh, about a cool. year before he passed. Okay. And uh, so that was pretty cool. And other than Holly, you know, we met Hagler and Ray Leonard and mm-hmm. a lot of them, a lot of them. You ever, ever, ever the get to meet Tyson? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was actually, he lost in the Olympic trials in 84. Okay. He fought a guy by the name of Henry Tillman. Mm-hmm. And in the amateurs, three rounds, three minutes. And Tillman is probably 6'2", 6'3". Tyson, on a good day, is 5'10". Yeah. He's just not very tall, and his arms aren't very long. So Tillman could move and jab and stick him on the end of his punches for three rounds, and he won. A little different story when they fought in the pros. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Tyson annihilated him. Yeah, he, he, but, gr- he uh, grew up a little, put on a little weight. <laughs> yeah, little Tyson muscle. was, yeah, he's he's a unique character. Yeah. He was actually at, oh, was it 277? UFC 277 we did in American Airlines, I think, in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, in July, maybe, end of July. He was there. Nice. And he, he came in wearing... Wearing a, a button-down shirt and real casual shorts, <laughs> walking stick and ankle weights. So nice. I I don't know what look he was going for, but you know, <laughs> I'm sure nobody he, wanted he to say attract, anything to him. So <laughs> that's right. He can attract a crowd no matter what he's wearing. So yeah, because even at yeah. this age, man, he he I've seen him his work over here as a man can still hit. He can still punch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he uh, he had actually had an ex- exhibition a couple years ago out in California with Roy Jones, mm-hmm. and uh, it was just it was an exhibition, but it sounded like it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I saw some videos that they both still look pretty decent. So I, I wouldn't yeah. want to step in there with either one of them. So <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. If there's a fight over the wallet, they're getting it. All right, so I got I got a few fun questions here to, to wrap it up. Do you have is sure. there a, like a favorite book? Usually I ask about just martial arts in general, but is there a specific one, maybe like a boxing book that either you you've read over and over, or if someone asks for a recommendation, whether it's a a technical book, a, a biography of someone, is there a, like a favorite boxing book? You know, I I'm not a big reader. I kind of burned out. I worked for Xerox for 28 years. Oh, that's right. We did yeah. 
always had technical updates on the manuals and stuff. And it was just like, I don't want to read anymore, but my wife is an avid reader. And so she's always teased me about that. But I, <laughs> I do have a book that, that I thought was kind of unique, a boxing book. And a friend of mine actually wrote it. Oh. I mean, Mike Fitzgerald out of Wisconsin. And it's called Third Man in the Ring. Okay. And it's basically about referees because a lot of people write books about fighters, yep. but not a lot of them write books about referees. And what's cool about it is there's a couple referees that over time I've you know worked with at the events mm -hmm. and he's got articles in there about them, chapters about them. That's cool. So that one, that one is a, uh, we'll pull it off the shelf here. Yeah. I'll have to look for that one. That sounds interesting actually. Third Man in the Ring, 33 of Boxing's Best Referees and Their Stories by Mike Fitzgerald. Okay. And he's he's uh, assisted by Patrick Morley. And they're both, if you watch a boxing on TV, you might see one or both of them doing some pretty pretty high-profile fights. Mike is from a small town close to Madison, I think, Wisconsin. So he works in Chicago a lot. And he does some world title fights and whatnot. And Patrick Morley is from Chicago. and Again, world-class judge. Well, when I was at... Uh, Hinkley with the with the Malax Commission, we would have some pretty good profile fights. We'd have some televised fights and whatnot. And uh, Mike Fitzgerald contacted us. He said, "If you ever need a judge, you know, I'm I'm willing to come up." And I said, "Well, yeah, we sure can consider that because we you know, always use good, fair judges." And I said, "But you know, you're you're quite a ways away." Oh no, he says, "Don't worry about that. I wouldn't charge you anything for mileage. My my wife's um, parents live in St. Paul, so I would just load her up." And this is his words, not mine. Dump her off at the end of and come on up to the casino. <laughs> so he kind of got to be a regular. Matter of fact, I think the, they just had a show a couple months ago on ESPN from the Hinkley Casino. And if I'm not mistaken, one or both of those gentlemen were there. Okay. That's kind of cool. All right. This, this, yeah. this next question, I don't know if they're, I can only think of one specifically about boxing. So do you, do you have a, f a favorite martial arts TV show that you enjoyed? I know the only, only boxing one I can think of was that one, the contender when it was on with, with Sylvester yeah. Stallone. Was there, was there any other one specifically about boxing? And if not, is there a martial arts one that you, you've enjoyed? Well, you know, the ultimate fighter was always interesting. Um, yep. As interesting as the competitors was the coaches and their strategies. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you had the contender, uh, there was actually a Minnesota kid that did yep. pretty well in that. Yeah, My I, kid, he's he's a couple years younger than me. He's no kid, but uh, <laughs> Anthony, uh, Anthony Bonsante. Yeah, Bonsante. That was yeah, because I watched that first season when it was on NBC. That was a really good show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know um, they they tried know, to continue it on ESPN and it just didn't do as well. So yeah, yeah, and that was you know the mixed martial arts growth, although it's it's somewhat plateaued, mm -hmm. and still you know at that time was unbelievably the slope on it was you know the percentage of how many more fights each year compared to the year before was crazy yep. it was awesome and um but texas itself didn't you know there are some states that almost have gone to where there was hardly any boxing at all mma texas actually stayed about 50 50 oh okay cool. we do about 120 total events a year okay and it's it's a rough split between boxing and mma that's cool but um but yeah i know the ultimate fighter um that was a good series and and but as far as other tv you know you had the old <laughs> remember kung fu oh yeah yeah I, actually know, a lot a kung lot of my guests picked that charity. show so <laughs> yeah with charity and everything under that was it was just it was i guess i didn't i didn't see that much uh, I don't remember seeing that much about the actual fight scenes and fight yeah. scenes themselves, but just the story that he, you know, kind of a vagabond and moving mm -hmm. around. And yeah, it was, yeah, it was cool. All right. Yeah. Th this question now, 
two-part favorite boxing movie and just favorite overall martial arts movie. Well, gosh, you got to put Bloodsport in there somewhere. Kuma oh, Kay. I love, Kuma that, love that movie. <laughs> that, that, it's, a, it's a favorite. It's, it's in my probably top 10 list. So. <laughs> and then you had, I, I suppose, for popularity and, and just timing-wise, you know, the Rocky, the first few Rocky mm-hmm. movies were good. You know, they're still, you know, still finding a way to put, there's a new Creed coming out here yep. pretty quick. Yep. So um, those those were always kind of a fun uh, a fun uh, series of movies to watch. Did you see or do you remember the boxing movie? I think it was 1992 called Gladiator. Did you ever see that I one? Remember, you think? I don't know if I ever went to see that. Oh, I do remember the. I went the to it around. four nights in a row in the movie theater. I liked it that much. It was Brian oh. De- Brian Dennehy was in it, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. Uh-huh. and James Marshall. I, I, I own the DVD. I still watch it like once a year. <laughs> so I might, I might have to do that this weekend. <laughs> it, it's, you might enjoy it. I mean, it, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably, it's not Rocky obviously, but it, I, I, yeah. like whenever I hear people talking, they're like, oh, I love the movie gladiator. And I start talking about boxing. They're like, what? I'm like, Oh no, not the Russell Crowe one. <laughs> I, I like the other one. <laughs> and they're like, no, no one's ever heard of it. So <laughs> yeah. Cinderella man was a good movie. That's a good one. Yep. That was a good movie. And then you had the old, I actually met a guy that was in God, Great White Hope. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that one. Yeah, okay. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was kind of funny because when I was working for the tribe up in, in Minnesota there, um, we were in the corporate building. They, they have a lot of interests outside of gaming. They have hotels, they have banks, they have mm-hmm. a lot of different things. And one of their attorneys came up to me and started talking. And his dad is Jim Beatty. And Jim Beatty was a pretty good pro fighter, heavyweight, never world champion or anything. Mm-hmm. But he was actually in that movie. Oh, wow. And he's like six, seven or six, eight, I think. Jeez. And one year, the Minnesota Boxing Hall of Fame honored our commission. So we were all there. And, and I believe he got inducted into the Minnesota Boxing Hall of Fame that year. So I've got a picture of himself and me. And you know, I'm, I'm about six one, but I look like a shrimp next to him. <laughs> And, that's uh, cool. Sad to say, he's he's passed since then. But just you know, had a lot of interesting stories that night. It was it was pretty cool. Nice. Deal. Final question. This one doesn't have to be boxing. Doesn't have to be martial arts. Just do you have a favorite movie fight scene? Oh gosh, favorite movie fight scene. I've had people pick anything from like Star Wars and Marvel to Bruce Lee to anything in between. So you can whatever you want. It, it, it'd probably be not one in particular, but just Bruce Lee. Yeah. In general, because of knowing that he was doing all that stuff himself, right? Oh, yeah. He was doing all his own, I wouldn't even call them stunts. They were yeah. fight scenes. Yep. And uh, so that that would probably be the ones that stick out with the most impact because you kind of knew that it wasn't all fluff. Right. You know? Although you did hear about um, oh, one of the Rocky movies when when uh, Stallone was supposedly sparring with Drago, with uh, Dolph Lundgren. Yep. And kind of, now you got to realize Stallone's not a very big guy. No. He's, he's short. He's, yep. you know, he's short. So anyway, he I don't know if it was his idea where they kind of picked up the pace of the sparring. And I guess Lundgren hit him in the chest so hard he bruised some of his <laughs> they had to take him into the urgent care, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean Dolph yeah. Dolph's a big guy and Dolph's, you know, yeah. been studying yeah. martial arts his whole life. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you gotta that's one one thing, you know, Sylvester's gotta remember. He played a boxer. Yeah. He was not a boxer. Yes. I mean, yes, yes, he's had training and stuff, but yeah. <laughs> Dolph Lundgren yeah. was a, an actual fighter and fought and yeah. Yeah. So, big big difference but, there. Yeah. <laughs> and nice. and that's that's part of the fun too, is some of the officials you meet. I've gotten to be casual, but you know, friends with uh Mike Beltron mm-hmm. and you know, kind of teased him about his last appearance on the Mayans. I said, you know. 
you're probably not going to be on next season. And he's looked at me like, you're such a wise acre. <laughs> they shot him in the head. <laughs> so he was done. <laughs> nice. But, you know, and meeting John McCarthy and, and all the, you know, the mixed martial arts and the boxing referees and, yep. and judges and stuff. It's, it's pretty cool. Listen to their stories and, you know, some of the situations they've been put in and yeah. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. John was a good and, guy. I went, I went to the training job. I think I can't remember if you were at that one or not, but the one he did at Hinkley, I think you were there. Yeah. 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 I put that one together. Yeah. yeah. You bet. Yeah. That was a, that was a fun training. He was a, he was a fun guy to talk to. I'm trying to get him yeah. on the show. So fingers crossed, he'll get back to me. He'd be a fun one to talk to. But that was, that was one thing too. I was, I was thinking of earlier when we, you said we need to get together with this mm-hmm. was the difference in ice that I saw in mixed martial arts in North Dakota, just in the few years that we regulate. And my point is just from their experience and learning better training techniques, just the few fights that we regulated in North Dakota, I saw a massive improvement in just a few years Yeah, because they were taking it seriously. They were doing their best to learn and to execute the techniques that were popular and that were successful. And and it was, it was kind of fun. Yeah. Not kind of, it was fun. It was fun seeing that. And I think you had, another difference was you had, it went from guys training in, in their garage to actual MMA schools, you know, you know, like Dylan yeah. Spicer's place and Tyler Larson and those guys and combining their schools and stuff that made a big difference when you went from just kind of doing it on your own to actually having legitimate instruction too. Yeah. Yeah. It went from maybe having someone's football tackling dummy in the basement <laughs> yep. on to actually sparring. And yeah, I, I mean, it was it was a lot of fun to see the the growth of the sport in that short of time. There was many years where I enjoyed our local fights way more than UFC. Well, it's it's the personal part of it. You get to, yeah. and that's that's something that I miss not training amateurs anymore. Mm-hmm. Is you know I had a kid that fought Oscar De La Hoya down to Olympic Training Center, and you know all these different fighters that you see become eventually world pro champions much less olympians and stuff those guys are all they're promoters now the ones that i watch as yep. little guys there are no more youngsters that i'm familiar with to say <laughs> that is true we're, we're a little more older than when we first met each other jim oh, <laughs> just right, a tad right, right. <laughs> oh but uh, jim i just i have to thank you i'm just glad we got to catch up but i mean i'm so glad i got you on the show and we got to, i mean you're an amazing storyteller i love your stories and i've, I've enjoyed this so much and I'm, I'm so glad we were able to do it well brian it's been my pleasure and uh again i mentioned you as one of the folks that kind of got us uh, uh on the right track as far as regulating and, and bringing your knowledge to us and, and and exposing me and not you know appreciate you not kicking my rear end in the gym when we worked <laughs> out together and, uh, <laughs> and i'm glad i'm glad that uh, y'all are still showing the same passion now that you did gosh 20 years ago almost yeah i suppose yeah i think i judged my first mma fight in like was one of Chris Autumn's fight in like 2002 or 2003, the old North, North Star fighting. So it's, yeah, it's there been 20 go, years. I don't, I don't yeah. judge anymore. I just, I kind of lost the interest. You know, it's, it, you know, the, the, the commission kind of took a break for a while. You know, even, mm-hmm. bef- even before COVID, they went through some restructuring and stuff. And then, you know, it's probably been now seven years since I've judged a fight. I've been asked a few times and it just hasn't worked into my schedule. So I miss it right. and I'd still like to, you know, maybe do it again someday. I just, you know, right now I'm too many other things I'm doing. So well, 
The guy's got a life, and I know you've got, what, you got two of them in college now? Yeah, yeah our second one just left for college. Well, the oldest one's done with college. we got a sec- oh, sec- okay. second one in college, and then one in 10th grade in high school. So I, I participated in high school. I participated in football, basketball, and track. And boxing was by far the toughest. And not necessarily because I was inexperienced when I started, but because of the, you, know, you don't get a break in there. there are no, you can't call time out. You can't. You know. <laughs> You just, uh, so anyway, but yeah, uh, again, Brian, I appreciate it. I'm honored to be able to talk to you again, again, like you said, just to catch up and also just to share some of the stories. Definitely. And we'll have to make sure that we don't wait as long to catch up again. So <laughs> absolutely, man. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.